Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah this morning. We're going to take a pause out of our series out of Hebrews. I hope you're enjoying your time in the book of Hebrews. But we're going to take one month kind of uh, postponement from the book of Hebrews to focus in on a series that we're entitling Good News. Now, we live in a world that's full of bad news. Can I get an amen? There's a lot of bad news out there. With every day, there's a new press conference, there's a new article that comes out where there is a lot of bad news in our world. And let's face it, we all are experiencing it in varied levels. For our students, they're experiencing a year unlike any year with regards to school. They're learning in different ways. They're having to miss the parties and the, and the ongoing fun that would happen between their students. Our athletes are missing out on games that they were looking forward to playing. Our, our musicians during this time of year especially are missing out on the concerts that they're a part of. Uh, there is a lot of disappointment in our world. Our economy, while it seems to be holding strong right now, we know that there are people that are struggling. We know small business owners that these shutdowns have caused lots of pain and angst along the way. These are difficult times. We know that the mental health of our culture and our community is suffering. The isolation that is being experienced by so great a people has never been seen before. We need good news. We need hope. We need joy. And we come to Christmas, that season that is supposed to give us hope and good news and good cheer and joy, and we come to it with a bit of bit whole humness to it. Why? Well, the office isn't throwing its Christmas party, and, and small groups may not be having their holiday event maybe in your small group, or maybe it's that the kids aren't going to have that Christmas party at the school. Uh, maybe you're not going to get together with family. There's a lot of disappointments, and yet what I want to remind us of, the very essence of Christmas is good news of great joy for all the people. Can I hear an amen? And so we need to be reminded of where we are to turn when we need good news amidst difficult times. And over the next four weeks, we're going to look at different aspects of good news to different people. Today, we kick off this series looking at good news for the struggling. And this morning, my gift to you is to take God's word, and I pray that it will be an ointment. It will be a balm to your hurting soul, your struggling soul that longs for good news. We are bombarded with bad news, but God wants us to know in a season of difficulty, there's good news to be found. So let's turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 2 and go through verse 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot uh, of the tramping uh, warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Yeah, that's a good place for an amen, yeah. What we're going to hear this morning is good news. But what I love about the passage in Isaiah is it doesn't start good. I read you the good part. There's a whole lot of bad before it. And what we're going to learn is in spite of our most difficult of circumstances and time, as followers of Jesus Christ, there is good news, no matter how dark the world that we live in may become. There's light always at the end of the tunnel. And the reason why is there is one who was coming in Isaiah's day, who has come in our day, and who is coming in the days to come, Jesus, the Son of Almighty God. And as we learn about this Jesus who was prophesied 700 years before his coming by Isaiah, we're going to learn some things. We're going to learn about him most importantly. And most involved because of his name. Four names he's going to be given. Now what is it about a name that tells us about things? Let me, let me help you with two names and then I want to share a couple examples with you. Uh, let me start with my own name. Timothy Daniel Bedal. Last week I told you when I heard those words I ran for the hills because I was in trouble. But why was I named Timothy Daniel? I learned early on as a boy that the reason why my parents named me Timothy was because like Timothy in the Bible, I too was a son of a mixed marriage. Timothy in the Bible had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And because of that, two worlds in essence collided and that love that those two worlds had came together and and they had a kid. Well, I am from a mixed background. My father is Iraqi. He's of Assyrian descent. My mom is European and American by nationality. And those two individuals fell in love and out of their love came Tim. Now, with that, how about Daniel? Timothy Daniel. Well, my dad chose that name. And he chose that name because he wanted the second son of his to be a man who would honor God. And Daniel in the Bible honored God. He was a man who was known for his faith. And as he was holding me in his arms, as I was uh, breathing my first uh, breaths of, of life on this earth, he wanted for his son a man who would honor God and would please God in all that was done. But he also, he told me, wanted a, a man who wasn't just uh, pleasing to God, but pleasing to his fellow man. In fact, that he would serve his earthly masters as he serves his heavenly master. And just as David, or sorry, Daniel did, Daniel served a great many kings. While honoring God, he was of great help and good to the world around him. And that's the kind of son that my father wanted. And I take a little bit of solace in the fact that I've lived out that purpose as one who has served God in the church 
and also served God with the catering business that I now run. Serving God and serving man to the glory of God. Now let me share a little bit about my business. Now I don't do this as a way of advertising, but my company is called 5Bs Catering. It was started by my parents, and many times I'll be asked on an event, what's the 5Bs? The five brothers? Are all of you named B, Bill, Bob, you know, Brent, and go down the list? And I love hearing those things, and then I have to tell them, where does 5Bs come from? Because a name says something. Well, there's five of us. Well, five who? Bill, Michelle, Chris, Tim, and Joel. Five bedalls. Well, where do the bees come from? We have logos of bees on our vehicles and all that. Well, my grandmother said after watching my mom and dad working that they were as busy as bees. Thus, five bees catering. Do you see that a name tells you something? A name helps to set a direction. A name tells you what your purpose is. A name tells you what you're trying to accomplish. Sometimes names have a way of defining us without us even knowing that we were going to do those things. In fact, I looked it up. It's a phenomenon called aptronyms. Aptronyms are names that are suited aptly to their owner. Let me help you out with some of these. Former bureau chief of CNN, his name was William Headline. (laughs) Then there's a veterinarian named Dr. Ted Bowser. How about the chiropractor Otto Wack? Oh, now we're waking up. Good, good. How about the financier who made off with millions of dollars, Bernie Madoff? (laughs) How about the barber, Dan Druff? Some of you still aren't awake. How about the dentist, Dr. Pullenhard? How about the German professor of psychiatry known for his works on anxiety, Jules Angst? I got a friend over here, he's laughing. How about the hairdresser, Sonia Shears? How about lawyer, Sue Yu? Okay, just so you know, I'm not making these up. How about a local attorney, Rick Law? Okay, this one you'll like. How about the dermatologist, Dr. Whitehead? (laughs) And finally, how about Dr. Tom Smelzy, the podiatrist? (laughs) Okay, names have a way of telling us about something. Do you know the name, even though that it's not going to be communicated in our text? The name that would be given to the Messiah that was being foretold 700 years before his coming, Jesus. You know what Jesus means? Jehovah saves, God saves. You see, names have a purpose. Names help us to understand what's going on. And what we're going to learn today is four names that are going to tell us about this one who was going to come, and he was going to give us hope. He was going to bring about joy, and he was going to grant us peace. But before we learn those names, we've got to understand why those names are so important to us. And notice the one who was going to come was going to be the answer, write this down, the answer for our chaos. He was going to be the answer for our chaos. Now I didn't read verse one because I wanted you to see the stark contrast 
from verses 2 through 7 of chapter 9 in Isaiah to what happens prior to it. Notice that the phrase that starts the chapter is, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The present standing of the people of Israel in Isaiah's time was a place of anguish and gloom. Now, let's rewind a little bit and go back because it says, but, at the beginning of the passage there, and it tells us there that we've got to look back and say, what's the contrast? In the NIV, it's nevertheless. So what's happened that's changed in verse 1, where there's going to be no more gloom and no more anguish where there used to be? Notice in chapter 21 of Isaiah 8, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they'll turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. I want you to notice how gloomy, how distressing that is And then this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There's an answer. There's good news. We are living in times, just as Isaiah said, distressed and hungry, enraged, full of contempt, distressed and in darkness, gloom and anguish. In fact, some of our days are so dark right now that the very phrase dark isn't enough. We've got to add thick or utter darkness to the phrase. Doesn't it sound like 2020 to you? We live during a time that's very similar. Now, right away, let's be careful. I know the difficulty that we're all facing. I know the difficulty that we're all enduring. But let us recognize, as difficult as these days are, there is much good that is going on. But that wasn't true for Isaiah. Isaiah was speaking to a group of people who found themselves being beaten down and walked over by the Assyrian army. Their cities were being set ablaze. Their houses were being confiscated from them. Uh, They were finding themselves hungry and no place for food because their crops had been destroyed or devoured by an invading army. And yet we can recognize, yet we can know that there is a sense that there is doom and gloom around us. All that we had planned, all that we looked forward to, has kind of been put on hold. In fact, it sounds like right when we think this thing is done, we add new mandates and new things to it. It seems like, you know, I kept telling my boys, don't worry about it, the fall semester, or I'm sorry, the spring semester last year, that we'll be done by summer. And then we'll be back to school by, by August. Well, that came and went, and school isn't the same. Well, we'll get there by the second semester, and now, as I hear the news, and now as I see what's going on, it's like, I don't even want to tell my kids when this thing is going to be over, because it doesn't seem like it's ever going to end, right? Doom and gloom. Anxiety and difficulty. Now, right away, what the people would do in times of doom and gloom, notice in verse 19 of chapter 8, where do they go? They could have gone to God, but the people go to diviners and mediums. They go to the talking heads of their day looking for good news. 
We look for good news underneath the Christmas tree. We look for good news because of a party or gathering we're going to have. We look forward to good news because our politicians say that mandates are over. But the good news we need to be looking for is the good news that comes from the Word of God. And so what we find ourselves living in is what some translations say in verse 2 is a season of death. And let's face it, death is around us. No matter your opinions on uh, this illness, we have a lot of death around us. And there's a lot of death to dreams, a lot of death to business, a lot of death to a lot of things that we hold dear. And while Christmas is to be a season of joy, let's face it, every poll and every survey that's given tells us that we are in a season of distress, disappointment, and even depression. In fact, I was talking to a couple counselors from our church, and they said the backlog of people that are in need of counseling is overwhelming. And some of you this morning find yourself in that place. And I want you to know that amidst that, as dark as that may be, there's joy, and there's hope. And there's love, and it's found in Jesus Christ. And we've got to lean into that, not only this morning, but each of our days. So the premise, the reason why it seems like chapter 9 opens up in a totally different way than chapter 8 is because of Jesus. Jesus is, even the very foretelling of Jesus 700 years in advance would bring joy to the hearts of people because they would know God's got a plan. And he's going to see this through. So nevertheless, nevertheless, Jesus is coming. Nevertheless, hope and peace are coming your way. But how? Three real quick things I want you to see in this. By the very essence of his message, Isaiah says three things. Number one, love was going to come. Write this down. Love was going to come amidst our distress. What it was, was in this world of trouble, one was coming who was going to change their circumstances. He was going to change things. And we learn from the life of Jesus that the very essence of his mission was one of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This love came, that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. This love came that while we were sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us. This is the kind of love. Now, you would think that Isaiah would be speaking to a remnant of obedient people. But notice what he says. In the text, they didn't seek after God. In fact, they say they spoke contemptuously. They were angry. They shook their fists at God. They blamed God for their sad lives. Maybe some of you find yourself there this morning. God, this is your fault. You could have stopped this. You've ruined this part of my life. You've ruined this part of my kid's life. It's your fault. Oh, you cloud it with other people. Well, it's our governor's fault, or it's our president's fault, or it's our congress's fault, or it's our school officials' fault, or it's our pastor's fault. But at the end of the day, we know the one who is sovereign is the one who is to blame. And we're filled, we're enraged, the text says in chapter 8, and filled with anguish. And you know what God does as we're shaking our fist at him? He sends Jesus. We don't deserve it. 
They didn't deserve it. But that's what God does. He gives. And he sent Jesus to be born in Bethlehem to show a world of hatred, peace, and love. And all the while he does that, what happens? The people of his day seek out to kill him. But God shows love amidst our distress, even though we don't want it from him. Number two, he brings light in spite of darkness. He brings light in spite of darkness. Those walking in darkness, notice in the text, have seen a great light. Notice the contrast. Darkness, light. Uh, we dimmed the, uh, the room to bring a little more festiveness with the lights that you're experiencing now. And here's the problem. There's darkness and there's light. I don't know if you know, there's a lot of light coming my way right now. In the first service, it was all by memory because I couldn't read any of my notes. Okay, it's blinding. It is amazing how much light breaks through darkness and how without light, we would stumble around. Now, I, I, I can blame light that it's so bright that I can't see my notes, but I can assure you of something. Without light, I wouldn't see my notes at all. In fact, what's being talked about here is that this idea of darkness is the picture Isaiah has of you and I stumbling through a room without any light, utter darkness. With that, we walk tentatively. That is, we're very careful. Uh, we're, we're not going to be so purposeful in our advancing. Why? Because in darkness, we don't know the obstacles that are there, right? When you're in a dark room, you're feeling out blindly trying to figure it out because you know at some point you're walking without shoes that your kids' Legos are there. Can I get an amen? And, and you think all manner of blasphemous thoughts when you step on a Lego, Okay. And so you're tentative. You want to make sure that you don't fall prey to the dangers within the room. The people of God in Isaiah were tentatively walking, feeling themselves out, trying to know, and all the while stumbling on all manner of obstacles along the way. And what happens is, is in this world of darkness, a light shines. Now we know this light. We know it by name, Jesus, the light of the world, who stepped down into darkness. We sing about that. And it allows us to walk with purpose. It allows us to walk with confidence and not fear. This light was to draw all people to himself. That people would see the light and they would walk towards the light as the wise men did the star. As they viewed it from the east. They needed light. How about life in a world of death? The word that is coming, this message that was coming would be a word of life. In verse 2, many translations said, they lived in the shadow of death. To a people who had seen their homes destroyed and families killed by enemy armies. Isaiah says, instead of darkness and death, a new day would dawn. For the one who was going to come was going to vanquish armies he was going to get rid of the oppressors. He was going to divide the spoils of victory and break the yoke and allow peace and prosperity to live again. This is the story of Christmas. Jesus the baby born in a world of doom and gloom, despair and anguish to bring what? Joy to the world. 
So when Jesus says in John 10, 10, that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life in all of abundance. He's saying, I have come with love in my heart to give you what you've longed for, but never could find. And so amidst this gloomy backdrop, we have this coming Messiah shining like the noonday sun. But what about him would bring hope? I'm a Cub fan, and hope springs eternal for Cub fandom. And what we say is, maybe next year. And I wonder if the Israelites were feeling that. Well, something's going to come at some point. And the answer is, well, someone's coming. And Cub fans, we used to say that all the time. Well, maybe next year. Maybe next year will happen. But as I got older, I'd say, well, it probably isn't next year. You look at their roster. You look at their pitching. They don't have anything more to offer than they did the year before. So why would we think they would be any better? We're living that as Bears fans right now. And what the prophet does is he says, listen, I'm not just going to bring you, hey, maybe next year. Let me tell you why I am so confident that you are going to experience amidst your chaos a new day dawning. And he gives us attributes of Christ. In verses 6 and 7, he begins to articulate what we know from this Christmas passage. We may not have known what was before it, but now we know we've seen this. It's in our uh, ornaments. It's on our pictures. uh, We display it. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We see that all over in our decorations and celebrations of Christmas. But have we broken it down? He uses a phrase, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, why does he do that? Well, first of all, in Hebrew writing, repetition was of great importance. When you saw something repeated, it meant focus in on it. Get your attention. What I'm about to share with you is important. That is why you would see in the writings of Jesus or the speaking of Jesus, where he would say, verily, verily, truly, truly. Why would he say it twice? Was Peter not listening? No, listen up. I've got something important to say. For unto us, you want to know who's coming? You want to know who's going to bring you joy? Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. I'm all ears. What you're about to share is you're going to share us who the one is. Who are we looking for? Who is the Messiah? Well, two statements are made about the person. Now, it would cause us to pause because it seems that some of what he's saying is contradictory. A child being born, but a son was given First of all, a child being born would tell the people that the one who was going to come, this Messiah, would not be an angel or, or some non-human. It would be a human being. He'd be united with us in our humanity. He would have a mom. He, he would be engaged in family life as we are. He would experience all that life in a human flesh would have, the blessings of it and the trappings of it. But he says a son is given. The son wasn't born. A child was born, but a son was given. This speaks of the Messiah's deity, that while his earthly existence had a starting point in the manger of Bethlehem, orthodox teaching, the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ had no beginning and he will have no end. John tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
And then in John 1.14 it says, And that word, that pre-incarnate word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was the child that was born and the son that was given. Now what do we need to know about this child? What do we need to know about the son? Four names. Number one, the first name tells us he is a one who will have profound counsel. One who has profound counsel. Wonderful counselor. Literally in the Hebrew, he is a wonder of counsel. One who thinks and acts beyond human comprehension. Judges 13.8 translate this as incomprehensible. If you want to understand a little bit more, Paul talks about it in Romans 11, 33 through 36, speaking of the depth and the heights of the wisdom of God. Who can fathom the, the, the mightiness of the intellect of our eternal God? These two words put together tell us that Jesus is the greatest advisor and counselor known to man. And in a world where we're in need of direction, and leading, where we find ourselves turning to anybody else seeking wisdom as they, listen, as they who are blind are leading us the blind, we need someone who is wise. We need someone who is able to counsel us. And aren't you glad amidst all of our unknowns that we have one in Jesus who knew everything before the worlds were created? That we have one who knows us better than ourselves. That in Jesus we have one who not only sustains our lives, but the lives of everyone else. In fact, the universe by the power of his word. That we have one, this counselor, who never sleeps or slumbers, who never grows tired from giving us wisdom. In fact, when we long for wisdom, it says he gives it generously without finding faults. Which then begs the question, in the midst of this doom and gloom, why are we not turning to our counselor? Why are we listening to the words of others' advice and guidance? Why aren't we listening to the one who lived life perfectly and obeyed God fully? Why do we go to other broken vessels to seek the ultimate wisdom of the world? The writer of the hymn, Oh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, reminds us of why we need to turn to our wonderful counselor. He says the following, Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should not be discouraged because we can take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who with all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness if we'll take it to the Lord in prayer. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Are you turning to him? Number two, we see a name that is a name about powerful character, mighty God. What this is saying is Jesus isn't just like God. He is God. That is, he knows more and he's more powerful than all other things. Jesus is our valiant warrior. He is our hero. He is our strong one in battle. This is what David was saying when he says, who is this king of glory? This king of glory who is more powerful than all others. To take wonderful counselor and mighty God and merge them together is to do the following. As counselor, he knows the plans that we should go in. And as mighty God, he sees to it that no one stands in our way. 
Not only does he counsel us, but he's strong enough to see that whatever happens to us, he's able to meet it and address whatever concerns us. John MacArthur, pastor in California, put it this way. Christ the King loves to step into a world of chaos, and he loves to bring order to it. Not only to provide counsel, but to give us the strength to face everything that comes our way. So, how do we apply this? What are you facing today? What seems so impossible to you? What is striking fear in your life? What sin is causing you to feel overwhelmed because you can't overcome it? Uh, No matter what you're facing, understand this, Jesus is greater, he is stronger than anything that we could ever ask for or imagine. Jesus is our refuge, he is our ever-present help in times of struggle. And so when we find ourselves filled with distress, we need to remember the one who came and spoke to the multitudes, and healed the sick, and exercised demons, and performed miracles, and calmed stormy seas, and raised the dead. And by the power of God Almighty, he himself was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our mighty God. Next, he's a God of personal comfort. So right away you'd say, okay, wait a minute. If this God's so mighty and so powerful, I don't want to be anywhere near him. He's dangerous. But then this comfort comes. He's our everlasting father. Now, wait a minute. I thought he was the son. Now you're saying he's the father. How is this happening? Well, Isaiah is speaking more, not of his position, but his practice. And what he's saying is, is this people that we're longing for, someone to lead them and guide them. And what Jesus was going to come, this Messiah who was going to come was first like a father going to give them life. We have life because of Jesus. We're able to live life. We're allowed to grow because of our father, Jesus. Second, he provides for us like a father does. Philippians 4.19, and God will supply all our needs through whom? Through Christ Jesus and his riches. He gives us life like a father. He provides like us for us like a father. Third, like a father who loves his children, Jesus loves us. Jesus knows what we need. Jesus calls to us to cast our concerns and anxieties like a good father would onto him because he cares for us. Like a good father, Jesus sacrifices for us. Now before you think that this is simply just a picture of Jesus being a good dad, we need to add the phrase everlasting to it. Everlasting has significance because it is will go on forever. Some of us have had great parents. And this year we've had to say goodbye to parents. Why? Because they let us down. And what do I mean by that? They let us down because they died. That is, they weren't with us forever. I will one day let my children down because I will die and I will go as my fathers before me have gone to the grave. But not so with Jesus. Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Bill Bidall can't say that to me. Tim Bidall can't say that to his boys. You can't say that to your children. Your parents can't say that to you. But Jesus can. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I won't do it because I've left you out of desertion. But he won't do it because he won't die. He's ever 
lasting. So maybe today you feel orphaned. Maybe today you feel abandoned. Maybe today you're feeling the sting of death around you. And I'm telling you, the everlasting Father, Jesus Christ, is to here to minister to you, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to set the captives free. He finishes these names with one of peaceful countenance. He's the Prince of Peace. Literally in the Hebrew, it means the Prince who is coming is bringing peace. Now right away, the people in Isaiah's day would have totally understand when he heard the phrase Prince of Peace. We don't. It makes a lot of sense on our fireplace as a decoration. But Prince of Peace, what does that mean? What the term Prince of Peace meant was that the king, when having a war with another uh, nation, instead of sending a general for terms of peace, To show that he wanted peace, he would send his son, the prince. So the two two nations are waging war against one another. The one king says, I want this war to end. I'm going to send my son as an emblem of peace so that that other nation will know I no longer want to wage war against them. Listen to me, the reason why Christmas is so special The reason why there is good news of great joy, the reason why the angels sang to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and peace, was because God no longer wanted to war with man. And he sent his son with a peace treaty. Come to me, all who are burdened. Come to me who are all weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We, like the world of Isaiah, shook our fist at God and God out of his benevolent and gracious love for us extended to all the world the offer to all who will come, I will give you rest. And that offer remains true today and it is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's offering you peace this Christmas. Now, this peace treaty, listen to me very carefully, has a beginning and an end. Grace has appeared to the world. But there will be a day where that grace will no longer be extended. And that's what turns us to the, the, the final thing, and that is while we look back at the first advent of Jesus being told of something in the future, we come to a spot as we look back to the first Christmas of an advent that is yet to come. You see, in verse 7, as he's articulated these names, and he's told us why these names are so important, why we need a wonderful counselor, why we need a mighty God, why we need an everlasting father and prince of peace, is the reason is that the world needs hope. And there's a day coming when Christ is going to come back. Notice verse 7. After sharing all that he's going to do, a child is born, a son is given, here's what he is. Notice verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And you stop there and you say, wait a minute, where's Jesus' government? Wait a minute, where's the peace? I don't see Jesus on the throne of David. I don't see Jesus establishing his kingdom and upholding it with justice and righteousness. We live in a world of injustice. Because in verse 7, 
we learn about the second advent of Jesus, his second coming. You see, Christmas is a reminder that just as God was true in sending Christ his first time, that he would prophesy about it 700 years before Christ would come, that Christmas is a reminder there's another coming, that Jesus is coming again. But he's not going to come, listen to me, my friends, he's not going to come as a cooing baby in a manger. He's going to come back this time as the conquering king. He's not going to come with words of peace, but with a sword to strike down his enemies. The peace treaty will come to an end and Jesus will come and he will deal once and for all with the enemies of God. And so in this moment, in this time, with every Christmas that we have, is an opportunity for us to accept the gift of peace. And what we as believers need to do for those who have accepted that gift is we need to recognize that the future sets forth our present. Notice Isaiah says, hey, something's happening in the future and it's going to change your present. So as we look at the second coming of Jesus Christ, what should we do? Let me close with three very quick things. Number one, we need to lean into these truths amidst the difficulty and the trouble. Listen, Hallmark isn't going to fix our Christmas this year. There's no Christmas Hallmark story about all of the disappointment, right? They always live happily ever after. They always, those women always find way better looking guys than myself, all right? It always works out for them. They live in a Hallmark world. We need something more. And so stop leaning into man-made traditions of Christmas to give you hope. Lean into Jesus. Lean into the kingdom that he is building, the kingdom that he wants you to experience now and forevermore. Number two, we lean into these truths. We need to grow in our longing. The zeal of the Lord, the passage ends with this, the zeal of the Lord will do this. Well, how zealous are we for the Lord? Do we treasure him as Mary did? Do we seek him out as the wise men did? Do we make him a priority as Joseph did? Do we sing and proclaim about him as the angels did? Do we long for him as Simeon and Anna did? We hear a lot about the spirit of Christmas and we think it comes with a fat guy in a red suit. But the spirit of Christmas comes from the little boy in a manger who taught us what humility and love looked like. And he expects us, he demands of us that we show the world that same humility and love. Finally, we need to let others know. The prophet heard a message from God and he declared it to others. He declared it to others. Well, brothers and sisters, a message has been declared to us and we need to declare it to others. Throughout the Christmas story, and we're going to hear this as the weeks go on, people are telling people about the awesome things God has done. And so as we interact with family, as we interact with friends, as we interact with strangers, we need to share the greatness of Jesus who called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. How do we do that? We do that in the cheer that we share. We do that with the cards that we mail out. We do that with the gifts that we give. We do that in all manners of life, in every way possible. This Christmas, we need to declare to all who will listen that Jesus Christ has come to give us life and to give it to us in all abundance. That's the gift we should be giving this Christmas. That's the gift that shouldn't 
uh, isn't going to fit underneath a tree. So take heart, church. I know the present seems dark and dim. I know there are a lot of disappointments. But never forget, Jesus Christ has come. And he is coming again. And because of that, we can have hope. We can have joy. We can have peace in the one who amidst our darkness brings forth great light. So be of good cheer, church. And share that cheer with all. And remind the world that Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, is here to make all things new. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for prophecy. We thank you that 700 years before Bethlehem, you would give Isaiah these words. You would proclaim to him these words about your coming. And Lord, I pray that it would move in our hearts today. I pray that as we listen to these words, we would in fact lean into them. These are hard days. These are not easy moments. But as followers of yours, we can take heart knowing that you're in control and that you will make all things new. So give us that peace. Give us that peace so we're not sitting there trying to figure out our lives, but doing your will only so that we may honor you, that we may bring glory to you, that whether with friends or with strangers, we like the shepherds may go and proclaim what we have seen and what we've experienced and give it as a gift to those who so badly need it. We love you and we thank you for it. And we thank you for the great name that means everything to us. The name Jesus that will be above every other name. We love you and we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.